Good morning. Uh, Please join me in prayer. Lord, we give thanks for the Bible and for your word that has brought comfort and wisdom to generations. We pray that you open our hearts to accept your word and receive, receive your gift of comfort and wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The uh, scripture reading today is from uh, Genesis 1, uh, verses 3 through 10, and 26 through 28. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the water to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And so it was. So God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dick. It's good to have you up front again. This summer, uh, really most of June and most of July, we are spending some time familiarizing ourselves or refamiliarizing ourselves with the very beginning, pages one, two, and three of the Bible. We're thinking about creation and how Genesis records creation and how God creates. And not just so that we can have some sort of an academic or intellectual understanding of creation, but, but actually the more we start uncovering what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, the more we realize that it affects us and who we are and what God calls us to. We're taking our time. We're not in a hurry. Uh, in fact, this is our third week and we're still stuck in Genesis 1. And um, I'm not sure how much longer we'll... I think next week we'll start dipping our toes at least into Genesis 2, but... There is so much here that we see, and sometimes it's really helpful to just stop and soak and marinate for a season in a text and let God bring it to life. You know, as we think about creation, there are a lot of good questions that come up, but one of the things I've noticed, especially as I've spoken with some of you, is that we all tend to approach it differently, and it's not that one is right or one is wrong, but they're just different points of emphasis. We notice different things based on how we're wired. 
So some, uh, as I've had conversations with some of you, some of you love the, orderly, the orderliness of creation. There is an order and there is a set structure. This is those of you who are type A usually love this part. So if you're type A, you know type A, right? You, uh, you love lists and checklists. Type A is the kind of person that um, if you do something that wasn't on your, to, on your checklist, you'll write it in and add a box and then check the box after you did it just because you love the process of checking the box. That's type A. And you love the orderliness of creation and how everything fits together so beautifully. And we looked a little bit at that a couple of weeks ago. Then those of you who are type B, who are more artistic, and you're like, what? Checklist? What's that? Uh, you love the beauty and what, what seems to be at the same time the spontaneity of creation. And a lot of you th- think about, even when we think about creation, the natural world. You're the type who, who hikes up to the, t- you go one to one of the 4,000 footers and you hike up to the top of the mountain and you just soak in and you feel, ah, the presence of God at the top of a mountain. And that sounds wonderful. I would love to know what that feels like, but I'm not, I'm not all that type B. What's amazing is that most of us tend to see creation in one of those two ways, and yet as we look at scripture, we see both present. It's almost as if God is both type A and type B. That's an oversimplification, I know, but, but God is both and is doing both. And we see in God's creation both order, for you type A's, and beauty, for you type B's, that God cares about both form and function. Or to put it differently, he's that, he's that exceedingly rare thing that maybe actually doesn't even exist in the wild. He's an organized artist. He is organized and orderly, and he is an artist and makes incredible beauty. So we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning thinking about those two sides of the coin, order and beauty, and then we're going to see how God invites us to participate in his order and beauty. Really just one way, because there, there are many. Let's think about order first. And I actually, I I didn't even notice this as much until just the past week. When we look at God's creation, especially the first three days, days one, two, and three, what is God doing? He, He creates things, but then he separates them. So in day one, it says he creates light, and then he separates the light from the darkness. Well, what are you doing when you're separating something, but you're organizing when you're organizing your kitchen cupboards, right, you separate. Your plates go in this one and your glasses go in that one. On day two, what does God do? He, he sees that there's water, and we'll cover this in just a second. Somehow there's water everywhere, and he separates water from water and makes this expanse in the middle that he calls sky. He's, he's organizing. He's creating order. And on day three, now there's water all over the face of the earth and he separates the water from water and causes dry land to grow up in the midst of the water. What's he doing? He's organizing, he's creating order. Now let's think about that water because water keeps coming up. And in fact, one person emailed me a couple weeks ago and said, wait a minute, we, we believe, we're taught to believe as Christians that God created everything out of nothing. And yet in Genesis 1, it says that there was before God created anything, there was water. So how can God create from nothing if there was water before there was anything? And, and don't think too much about it because it'll make your head swim. In the Old Testament, water, especially the sea, I should say, not water, but the sea represents chaos. 
Actually, the sea still is a very chaotic place. But especially in the ancient world, the sea is a place of chaos. And when you see the seas or the oceans mentioned in the Old Testament, there's a representation that people are out of control and there is danger and there's chaos. We don't know what's coming next. It's incredible anxiety. It's, it's still that way today, actually. You don't have to go much further than I mean, You can probably go even closer. But what comes to mind for me is go to Gloucester, Mass. And go to the Fisherman's Memorial, which is a, a giant memorial of all of the Gloucester fishermen who have been lost at sea. What are they doing? They're commemorating, in a sense, and recognizing and respecting the chaos of the sea. Maybe you haven't been to Gloucester in the past week, but in the past week, I bet every one of us has been following the story of the submersible that was lost. The the sea is still a place of chaos, of unknowns, and of danger. And that's in our modern 21st century world. Imagine how much more chaotic the sea was thousands and thousands of years ago when fishermen very frequently went out to sea and never came home. People were terrified of the sea. You tried to avoid the sea. So when you hear about God separating the seas and creating the heavens or the sky and then land, what's he doing? Well, he's creating places of safety and refuge for his people where they can be safe from the chaos of everything else. Do you see? We talked more about this a couple of weeks ago. God is creating order out of chaos in order to provide for and to take care of his people. And then not only does he organize and put things in their place, but then he further orders things by by creating creatures to rule over the creation. And so in days four, five, and six, I know this is we're gonna fly through this part, but if, if you like this kind of stuff, what, in day four, he creates the sun and the moon and stars, and it says to rule over the light and the dark. And then the birds in the air and the fish, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in day six, humans, it says he creates humans again to rule over all creation. God wants us to be a part of his order and creating order in a chaotic world. He's a God of order. And all the type type A people said, amen. He's a God of beauty as well, of spontaneity and of creativity. Back in January, we actually spent a whole sermon series thinking just about God's, what we call God's beautiful kingdom. And I, I intentionally, I never really defined beauty there. It's been said, if you want to dissect something, you have to kill it first. And so we don't want to like, there's, there's, okay, we can't really define beauty, but, but at least one core aspect of what it means for something to be beautiful, it's more than this, but it's certainly not less than, is that beauty is completely unnecessary to life, right? I mean, think about it. Beauty, by definition, is something that's over the top and that's extravagant. It's more than what we need. You don't need azaleas in your yard, or art on the walls of your house in order to survive, do you? You don't need those. You don't need makeup or nice clothes that are flattering and that fit well in order to keep breathing, right? 
You don't need to go to that nice restaurant where the meal is plated in this incredibly artful way and, and the, the flavors and the ingredients you would have never thought of putting together and, and somehow they just work. Like you could just eat rice and beans. But there's something about beauty that is so compelling that actually every single culture on earth spends an awful lot of time and energy pursuing this thing that we really don't need. Why? Well, because Genesis 1 tells us we are made in God's image, and God is a God who loves to create beauty. He's a beautiful God. So he doesn't just create light and flood the world with this vague, abstract light with no source. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars, and when's the last time? I know it's been raining, so we haven't been able to do this recently, but when's the last time you've gone out on a clear summer night far away from any city and looked up at the heavens and been gobsmacked by the, just the sheer quantity and density and beauty of the constellations in the heavens. Did God need to do that? No, it's over the top, but he loves beauty. Some people love to watch birds. And you notice things in birds and there are all these different kinds with colors and all these are they necessary for survival not really they're just beautiful why because god is a god of beauty he's a god who creates order and he's a god who creates beauty and the beauty is he invites us to join him in his creation but i'm getting ahead of myself I want to think about one last thing. So we've thought about kind of what God creates, and there's more to it than this, but we're just thinking about order and beauty this morning. Now let's spend just a few moments thinking about how God creates, and then we'll start tying everything together. This is one of the most central features of Genesis 1. There's special emphasis in Genesis 1, especially in the Hebrew, on the fact that God creates not by tinkering, but by speaking. He just spoke, and molecules which didn't exist came into existence. Like, you and I can't do that. You can't go into a room and just say, light. You have to flip a switch, which has to be connected to the light bulb, and the electrician has to have connected the light bulb and the switch to your breaker panel. The utility company has to have connected your breaker panel to the power plant. Somebody had to build that power plant, and so on and so on and so on. And all of this just so that you don't have to eat dinner in the dark. God said, light. We're used to let there be light. Kind of the old King James. If if you read the Hebrew, literally, God doesn't say let there be. He just says light. In fact, Hebrew is really difficult to translate because Hebrew as a language itself is, is very artistic and metaphoric. There's an author who has taken the Bible, and it's not exactly a translation, but it, he's paraphrased it. He's kind of put it into his own words and he'll be quick to tell you, this isn't literal, but this is meant to try to give us an idea of how an original listener would have heard the Bible in Hebrew. He was a pastor. He was an Old Testament scholar. What I want to do for you is just read a little bit of Genesis 1 in his paraphrase and just feel the force of the language. It's not perfect, but it gives us a different sense. First this, God created the heavens and the earth, all you see, all you don't see. 
Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke. Light. And light appeared. I'm going to skip down a little bit. God spoke. Sky. In the middle of the water, separate water from water. And there it was. God spoke. Separate water beneath heaven, gather into one place, land, appear, and there it was. Do you hear, do you hear the force of the language? Do you hear the, do you hear the creativity, the God? It's, it's like God with his palette just slinging paint at the canvas and this perfect artwork emerging. The joy in creation, both in how God creates and what he creates. Just with a word. And I say creates in the present tense on purpose because God, as it turns out, is not done creating. He is still creating and still speaking order and beauty into this world. There's there's a very popular, very frequent misunderstanding about God. It goes something like this. God created everything and then he just kind of stepped back. It's like he spun the top, and now he's just letting the top spin on its own. There's a fancy word for this. Theologians call it deism. Actually, a lot of our founding fathers were deists. Thomas Jefferson is probably the most notable one. A deist believes that God is basically like a clockmaker. He, he fashions, and he creates this incredibly intricate clock, and he winds it up. He's a very old-fashioned. It's not an Apple watch. It's an old-fashioned clock, and he winds it up, And then he just lets it run. And the clock runs by itself. There's a lot of problems, as it turns out, with deism. But one of the key problems is that when we think that God has stepped back, then we think we need to take matters into our own hands. And so often, especially when Christians, when people who say we're following God, when we sin, it betrays some sense that we're actually slipping into a deistic mindset. God isn't there. And so I need to figure stuff out for myself. I need to take matters into my own hands. God needs my help. That's what we're basically saying. And we forget or we ignore that God is still present and still active and still working in the world and in our lives. In the New Testament book of the Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews um, counters this pretty forcefully. And he says this, the son, that's S-O-N, Jesus, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, and he upholds the universe, present tense, by his powerful word. That somehow God is still involved in creation and keeping things going. In the spirit of of just stretching our minds and poetic understandings of this. There's a British author in the 1800s named G.K. Chesterton, theologian, kind of a polymath. He did a little bit of everything. And here's what he, here's who he writes kind of about this. He's actually writing in a different context about, actually about us having a more childlike faith, but you'll hear the connection. Listen to what he writes. He says, because children have abounding vitality, 
because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they, children, want things repeated and unchanged. Parents, this is going to start resonating. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again and again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps, perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that he makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And don't take that too literally. If you know Chesterton, you know he just loves to twist the knife like that. But to tie it in, do you see that maybe God is still creating, upholding the universe by, the word, by his powerful word, as we read in Hebrews, because he takes the same delight now in fashioning order and beauty from disorder and chaos as he took when he first said, light. And here's the kicker. He doesn't do this alone. I have a pastor friend, and we were talking this week, and he said, what are you preaching on? And I shared kind of some of the creation stuff. He said, oh, yeah, isn't it so interesting? And and then you read Genesis 1, and you see that God isn't done creating. God never finished creation. I thought, what? And we started talking, and, and the more I go back, the more I go back, I realize what at least my friend was getting at. It's not as if God created and it was done. It's as if God is constantly creating and he invites us to participate in his creation. We could make more of this, but let me just point out. So in Genesis 1 through 3, God creates and then he separates and then he names. He creates light and, he, and then it says he called the light day and he called the night or the darkness night. And then on day two, it says he called the expanse between the waters sky. And on day three, he called the the dry ground, he called it earth or land. God gives them names. Then on days four, five, and six, God quits giving names to what he's created. And if you skip ahead to Genesis 2, God actually gives Adam a job. What's his job? To name all that he has made. As if God has started creating and then he created us and now he invites us to participate meaningfully in his creation. Adam and you and I are to continue the work that God has started in a sense. And that doesn't mean that God isn't at work. It does. And there's, there's some weird both and stuff going on, that both God is at work, but we don't get to use that as an excuse for us not to join him in his work. Last week, we used the phrase vice kings to describe this. He has made us vice kings, not kings of vice, but vice kings, like vice presidents. Vice presidents, second in command, 
We are vice kings, almost as if we are second in command to speak order and beauty over and into creation just as God has done and is doing. If God's work is to speak order and beauty into creation out of disorder and chaos, then our work as vice kings is to create order and beauty from disorder and chaos. Our work is, in a sense, God's work, wherever we find ourselves. And work doesn't just mean a Monday through Friday, nine to five. It's school, it's retirement, it's running errands, it's taking care of the grandkids. Everything we do, I should say, in everything we do, God calls us to take the chaos and the disorder that we so often find in the world and to work as hard as we can, as best as we know how, not perfectly, to fashion that into order and beauty, namely with our words. Now, this applies in other areas too. We're just not going to cover that today. And actually later, I think in the fall or so, we're going to spend some time really thinking more deeply about work and how do we express our faith in work. And then we'll talk about how you can make this banging spreadsheet, like to the glory of God, because you just took an incredible amount of chaotic and disordered data and you organized it in Excel and, and praise be. Or we'll see how like hospital, you can, you can be the, the kind of person who makes your home just a hospitable place where people feel safe letting down their guard and they come into your home feeling disordered and chaotic and they leave your home feeling more ordered and more beautiful. And all of those kinds of work are God's work. We don't have time to cover all of it. This morning, let's just think about how God creates. How does he create? He speaks. Just with a word, light, and there was light. Which means that our ordinary words are some of the most powerful tools, maybe the most powerful tool that God gives us to co-create with him. You know, words are, words are a funny thing. Like on the one hand, words are nothing. They're just, they're a vapor. You speak them and then they're gone. But we all know they're not gone, right? And they, and they linger. On the one hand, words, words really change nothing. If you just look at the physical world, all they are is a pressure differential in the air around you and your ears interpret it and, and you stop speaking and the pressure returns. Nothing. And they change nothing. But we all know that words can change everything. Right? Wendell Berry is an author in, um, is is it Kentucky? I think he's Kentucky and maybe West Virginia. I think Kentucky. Author, farmer, poet, philosopher, he does everything. And he wrote this novel, Hannah Coulter. And in Hannah Coulter, he reflects on what happens when you tell a woman she's beautiful. You tell a woman she's beautiful. It's nothing but words. I'm paraphrasing him here. It's nothing. It's just a pressure differential in the air. A vapor. Gone. But they change everything. They change the way. When a woman hears that she's beautiful, it changes the way that she, that she walks. 
It changes how she carries herself. It changes how she thinks about herself. It changes how she interacts with others. All of that just because of a word, you see? Our words are a vapor, but they're not. They change reality, just like God's words change reality. They are powerful. And they can be either powerfully productive or they can be powerfully destructive. Good words and God's words create order and beauty from chaos. It's what they're meant to do. And it's possible to speak not good words. Maybe it's an overstatement. Maybe it's not. I don't know to call them evil words. And I don't just mean words that are mean or immoral or... But really any words which introduce or which amplify chaos and disorder instead of beauty and order. All those words that we think are benign and consequential, a vapor, they don't really matter, right? Some of it's just small talk. What is this world coming to? Do those words create beauty or do they amplify the chaos? We have to protect ourselves from fill in the blank. And we hear this on both sides of the aisle. Those words introduce order into the world or disorder. I can't believe that so-and-so would, again, fill in the blank. I would, I would never do that. Beauty or chaos, you see? And even today, with something as simple as the words he has given us, God invites us to continue with him in his work of creation, speaking beauty and order into the chaos and the disorder of our world. Now, if you spend enough time thinking about this, it's easy to get really depressed because it's very easy for all of us, myself included, to think of times that we have not used words in a way that introduced beauty and order and in a way that we have amplified disorder and chaos and distrust. The Bible calls it sin. It's just, I mean, you can define sin a thousand different ways, but how about this for today? Sin is our refusal to participate with God in his creation of order and beauty. If you jump ahead two chapters to Genesis 3, you can read all about it. And we make resolutions, we try to improve, and we think about our speech. We think about our speech, right? I'm going gonna, I'm I'm gonna to not complain so much, or I'm going to try to be more positive, or I'm going to try to be more patient with my kids, or I'm going to whatever. And, and, and it goes really well for like a week, and then we slip right back into it. And we think, what's the use? How do we, how do we break free from that? How do we actually live into the order and the beauty to which God calls us? Let's go to John 1. First chapter of John, which is meant to have strong echoes of Genesis 1. Listen to the first few verses of John 1 and listen for Genesis in John 1. In the beginning, sound familiar? Was the Word. And the Word was with God And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him, this is the word, all things were made. Sound familiar? Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then the turn, if you jump 10 verses down the page, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, which we would call the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was present and active in creation in making all things, and then the word of God became flesh, put skin on. God, who is by definition uncreated, became, in a sense, created. And at the cross, Jesus, the word of God who had become created, allowed himself to become decreated. That's what death is. And at the cross, the word of God who creates beauty became unbeautiful. We don't think a lot about this, but Isaiah 53, reflecting ahead on the cross, we read this about Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty that should attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. On the cross, it's not an overstatement to say Jesus was the ugliest person in history. He who created and is beauty became ugly And he who creates order became in his death disordered. The word of God, God himself, subjected himself to the consequence of our sin, namely death. Again, you can read about that in Genesis 3. So that the consequence of our sin, death, would be stripped of its power over us. And so that we might be given power once again to co-create with God in his work of creating order and beauty. So that we, and so that we might be recreated. And, I know it keeps going, it's incredible. (laughs) And so that we might join in the recreation of all things restoring order and beauty to a world that is scarred by disorder and chaos. Or as Jesus puts it very simply in Revelation 21, I am making all things new. The cross and the resurrection, those three days, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday, are the absolute climax of history. It's where the uncreated collides with the created, where decreation gets swallowed up by recreation, and where God invites us into his story of making all things new. Amen.